Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. Childhood is often depicted as the age of innocence, a time when our children are untainted by the murky world of sex and pleasure. But often when we realise that they are sexual beings, driven by curiosity and pleasure, it makes us feel extremely uncomfortable. Many wonder if this is normal behaviour. We might even recoil at the idea. With me today is Saskia Bujo, a relationship and sex educator who supports and answers the questions of confused parents. Thank you so much for joining me today, Saskia. Hello, thank you for having me. I want to talk about the idea of our children being sexual beings. Mm. And is it a myth that children aren't sexual at all? Because I think there is a general assumption that that is the case. I mean, I think we need to go way back to how most children are made is through sex. And then I'm sure we'll get into conversation about sex not just being for baby making, but also for pleasure. But yeah, children feel pleasure in the womb. You know, their pleasure is is their birthright. And so I think from a very young age, we can see babies, you know, discovering their hands, discovering their feet, putting their feet into their mouth and all these, you know, stages of development that we really welcome. And we want our children to feel pleasure. And then I think that there comes a point when we realize that they're discovering their private parts and their genitals where we suddenly think, oh my gosh, and I think you, you, you say quite rightly, you know, we recoil. We really do. You know, I spend my days talking about sex and relationship education. And I even I have those moments of anxiety. So I think it's really important to acknowledge those are very natural reactions to have. But I think we need to try and normalize the conversation around our children are sexual beings. And they have to be able to develop, you know, a comfortable zone in which they can feel pleasure but they need support and guidance and we need to be able to provide them with the the structure in which it's safe to do so. And I think we, you know, as parents, we only want the best for our children in terms of them achieving healthy sexual relationships. And it's, it's got to be worth the time and effort to help them achieve those relationships. You know, it's, it's a really interesting time because I see you know, I have three girls, my youngest is two. And I noticed with her more than the others, when she began potty training, her genital area was a lot more free. And so she became much more exploratory. She was using her hands in between her legs a lot more than I'd noticed with the other two. And so even though I dish out this advice as a professional, as a mother, I, I, I have to, you know, I put myself back in the shoes of the anxious parent who, who doesn't really know how to react. And there is, and I see it, the temptation to say, you know, stop doing that or don't touch yourself there. 
And actually what we're doing is we are demonizing any kind of self-pleasure and touch. And then as our children become older, I think it's important to be able to say, well, it's okay for you to touch your own body because it's your body. And we get into the very early stages of the consent conversation. But then we start to bring in very slowly and gradually this conversation of privacy and boundaries. And so I often use the example with parents of, well, when we go to the toilet, that's something we do in private. You know, we don't all walk around touching ourselves. And so I think it's important to to feel that we can allow our children the freedom to discover their own bodies because it is such a natural, a healthy part of of their of their self-discovery and exploration but to, but to bring in the structure and I mean you mentioned you know how you even notice the disparity between your children mm. I mean I want to say what is normal and not normal but mm. I also appreciate that there is a huge difference between different children I mean some children I think parents don't notice anything until they hit puberty yeah and some babies are very exploratory but on that spectrum of normal mm. really just to reassure parents mm. in terms of sort of sexual exploration mm. just with obviously with themselves yeah what is what is kind of the parameters of normal because i'm sure there are some parents who see their children little boys fiddling with their willies and yeah. they think is my child depraved yes. or is yes. there something wrong or is there something yes. they've been exposed to that's yes. given them ideas well i think there's two things when it comes to children discovering their bodies there's them just on that level having discovered themselves and so they're sort of fiddling around one day and they work out that they have this part of their anatomy and they just want to work out what it is and then they might as a result of that find out that something feels nice so there's that aspect that comes from just curiosity and then there's the aspect of just self-soothing and so you know for, for various reasons and lockdown has been a really interesting time I've had calls from parents who have obviously been at home much more with their children so they're noticing a lot more changes in behavior then maybe with their children who are a little bit more anxious because things are just different and we know that children will react sometimes in very physical ways to any changes in their environment and sometimes that means that they will soothe themselves through masturbation or just through fiddling around everyone's got more time i suppose yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah yeah so both of those things, I think, just need, they need addressing in the sense that we need to be able to say to them, well, it, we're not stigmatizing it, but we're providing them with a structure in which there is a time and a place for it to happen. And so with very young children, it's obviously quite difficult because of their language is somewhat restricted. You know, any, any child that's sort of under three, you're limited with with how much you can explain so I think it's just trying to very carefully trying to sort of direct that behavior into maybe giving them something that they can fiddle with in their hands you know if you're somewhere like a public library or you're somewhere where it's not appropriate to be having their hands down their knickers so you're trying to redirect that sense of having to fiddle with something when they start to get a little bit older, you can use language and you say, well, remember, this is okay to do this. And then I always like to say to parents, just check, you know, are you okay? Do you, is something itching you or is something hurting? It's always good to try and, and rule out the fact that there might just be something that might need medical attention. And then you're also saying that you've observed that behavior and that you've observed it, but that you've acknowledged that it's okay for them to do that. And then once you've ruled out that it isn't anything itchy and that it is themselves soothing, 
that it is the self-soothing, then you acknowledge that that's also okay, but that you provide them with, you know, a time and a place for doing that. So again, that really depends, you know, every family is so different. So, you know, there are families who will be okay with children watching television and fiddling with themselves. And there are other families that will ask that their children go to their bedroom and do it. And so there really isn't a right or wrong answer there. It really depends on what you're comfortable with. But I think if the self-soothing is ongoing and you can see that your child is sort of going into sort of another world and they're basically pleasuring themselves to the point where they might be reaching orgasm, then that might be a time at which you might want to get some sort of support for that because often it's to do with just having to maybe having experienced something uncomfortable or they're trying to escape from some kind of you know trauma or there are underlying issues sometimes with with self-soothing that where we reach the point of orgasm it's very common to see children in the car and rubbing the car seat against themselves especially little girls they work out that they can rub the car seat on their clitorises that kind of behavior doesn't concern me because they've just worked out pleasure and they want to feel pleasure for whatever reason that is and they don't have the notion of you know privacy that's something that we, that's a layer that we bring to them so the privacy layer is something that they they don't have that concept you know that's really for us to bring to the table and do you think there's an innate like i'm sure there are some children that somehow feel more comfortable doing this alone or do you think all children need to be told you know you you do this in private I think when children get to the point where they have worked out that private parts private Mm -hmm. then they might feel a little bit uncomfortable about touching themselves in front of other people Mm -hmm. so usually that will be about age five and up I mean when I say ages I'm always aware of children you know age and stage but yeah as soon as they have a concept of what's appropriate and what's not Mm -hmm. you know at the age when they know it's not okay to run around the block naked anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I have eight, four and two-year-old and my four and my two-year-old are naked all the time at home. And my eight-year-old's just much more aware of what's appropriate. Mm. And so, yeah. Which is a good thing. Because yeah. Because actually, and that's you know, something... when you're eight, your, child, your body's on, yeah. you know, on the cusp of actually starting to change. And... Absolutely. But I think, you know, what we model ultimately is the most powerful tool we have we can we can preach as much as we like if we're not practicing that then 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 it's a wasted opportunity i think and we don't walk around naked in the streets and we don't walk around with our hands in our pants so i think you know at some point our children will understand that you know there's a time and a place i think it's really interesting to think about you know the the anxiety that parents have around our children beginning to feel pleasure because we as parents or or adults we sometimes feel like pleasure is something that we need to earn or that we deserve if we've done something good or on a very simple level you know we've had a long day we're gonna have a nice long bath or you know I deserve this piece of chocolate because I've had you know really healthy meal all day just in that reward system and so it's it's really interesting when we when we talk about pleasure and I think it's the only way that we can try and help ourselves move through the discomfort is by really analyzing our own sex education or lack thereof and our own history of sexual relationships and romantic relationships because we know how harmful they can be and how you know potentially damaging they can be so I think 
part of the conversation with children is, you know, trying to normalize the narrative around making pleasure okay, to know what is safe, and then they will know what is not safe. And ultimately, it comes down to a big safeguarding issue. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And I suppose as parents, we've just got to be prepared for our, the fact that our children might well be you know, curious about sex. Because yeah. it's not even just about self-pleasure. It's also, mm. you know, you see some children that are just really curious about the act of sex and that might not be that you know they're different or anything's wrong with them Mm. they're just a little bit more curious and maybe they are a little bit more likely to seek things out yes you know I've spoken to people where you know in that sort of school environment there's one child that's really curious and they've maybe you know a group of children have been caught looking at something that they shouldn't really have been looking at Mm. and there are some parents that are in total denial well it wasn't it wasn't my child there's no way they would have been interested in that I mean that doesn't strike me as particularly helpful in that situation Mm. and but I think that probably stems from that sort of revulsion of my child is a little innocent I don't know, six-year-old. Yeah. There's no way they can be interested in that. Yeah. But actually, it's it's quite normal for them Absolutely. to be curious. Absolutely. I mean, it's, there's nothing more normal in the world to, to want to know also where we came from. And so the conversation around sex is really interesting because I see parents who say, oh, well, he's not ready. He doesn't, he hasn't asked me. And actually, I, I feel that there's a really good opportunity for parents to initiate the conversation because that way they're just sending a really strong message about it's okay to have this conversation in our household. We talk about sex, you know, sex is not a dirty word. And, you know, I have other parents who say, well, I, I don't want to give him all the facts because what if he goes to school and he's, he, he tells his friends everything? I say he, it could well be she. And I think we're, we're scared of that situation happening. But I always say, well, if what he's saying or she is saying is fact, and so much of sex and reproduction is fact, you know, it's later it gets complicated. But at the beginning, the layers, the foundations that we're creating are undeniable. And so we shouldn't be scared of our children talking about what is fact, because otherwise, 
if we don't give them the answers, then they're just going to find the answers elsewhere, which are either going to be online if it's, you know, plus seven, plus eight years old, or through their peers who might not have the right information. Well, um, at least you own the conversation then as a parent. And then you own the conversation and you're saying, I talk about this with you. And you're also saying to your child that it's a normal part of life and it's a huge part of life. And, you know, we have a new curriculum now coming into schools, thank goodness, because the last one was from 2000. And so we think about how much society has changed in the last 20 years. Think about social media, think about, you know, all the other aspects of of our relationship and sex education, you know, pornography and all those types of things, which are now all part of the curriculum. But as I said, it gets so complicated later on when we've got to start talking to our children about, you know, what is sexual abuse? What is rape? What is pornography? We don't want to have to have that conversation at the same time as what sex is. We want to start with what healthy sex is, what consensual sex is. And then you start adding the layers, those complicated layers. And those are much more tricky conversations to have. But sometimes and this is what I say to parents and carers a lot, is the value really is in, 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 in bouncing back off each other. It's not necessarily in finding the perfect answer. It's in just seeing, well, you know, what is it that you know? And often they know more than we think they know. And then you, we can ask them the questions that, they, that we think they want to ask. And we're surrounded by these triggers for conversation all around us. And, you know, at a very young age, it can be just watching Cinderella dancing with the prince and, say, and saying, well, look, they are so happy together. They are starting to, to develop feelings of love and he is letting her hold him and she is letting him hold her and they're dancing together. And, and that is the beginning of a really healthy relationship. And then it's up to us to drip feed in the other pieces of information to do with now we have in the new curriculum everything around sexuality everything in orientation gender you know we have all these complicated issues which we're all scared of saying the wrong thing and we're learning as we go along the way but I always say to parents you know find your brave space yes it's highly triggering in many ways because we're brought back to oh my gosh you know this is what I didn't have I didn't have this conversation and so what is it that I would have liked to have had? And then what is it that I want for my child? Yeah, I mean, I think that I remember so well being kind of at prep school and, and I was convinced that babies came out of mother's tummies. Mm. Not quite sure how I thought they came out, but that's where they came out, I thought. And my friend Jessica said, no, no, they come out of their bottoms. And I was like, no, that's not right. It's out of the tummies. I was like, I know my father's a doctor. I know. And yeah. I'm going to check with him. And I remember so well sitting down at breakfast <laughs> and he's like eating his muesli at sort of 7.30 on a Monday morning. I was like... Daddy, Jessica says babies come out of you know parent mummy's bottoms. Yeah. I thought they come out of their tummies. Yeah. I just remember my father literally just stopping. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is that I had no notion that this was potentially an awkward conversation to yes. have. Yes. I was just like the same as you know yes. you sniff from your nostrils. It yes. Was, it was a very sort of yes. straightforward thing, and, yes. and actually, as parents, you need to capitalise on that, don't you? Definitely. I think you can miss the boat sometimes, but then I always like to say it's never too late either, because I don't like parents to worry that they have missed the boat. But there is that stage of development where the children haven't got that sense of what's awkward, what's embarrassing. That comes later, and so. 
try and bank on that moment where, and that's the argument for talking about sex and relationships early, is that we are again normalizing the conversation, we're making it something okay to talk about. And they will, of course, at some point go, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, this, this, is, this is big. But that's okay. Name, it is big. Name that reaction yeah. and just say, yeah, this, this, is, this is weird, isn't it? Or, you know, just be, be really human about it. But don't pretend your child's not curious, even if they're yeah, exactly. six. I mean, that sort of denial, it just seems like the biggest you know, it, it, you're sort of letting your child down in a way if you're, yeah. you're, I mean, interestingly, I definitely feel that kind of revulsion of the idea mm. of my children being sexually active. Mm. I don't know, I don't know what that stems from when you mm. sort of talk about sort of early experiences. Mm. But actually, if you think about it, children, people are hardwired to be curious about sex because mm. otherwise we wouldn't exist as a species. Yes. It's like sex is the most important thing we do while yes. we're on this planet. Yes. And it is, it is the one, the most important sort of sense. So of mm. course it's natural that children mm. are going to be hard. I mean, it's almost more worrying if they're not. Yeah. Well, I think as well when children come to, you know, lead up to the questions that will require the answer, the penis goes into the vagina. We all absolutely cringe at the thought of having to say that. And if that is the first moment that your child has heard the word penis and the word vagina, then that is going to be, yes, a shock horror moment. So again, the argument for getting in there early is to introduce proper names for anatomy as early as possible so that you've used the word penis in about, you know, as many contexts as you can in normal everyday life. And so that when you do come to say the word penis goes into vagina, then they're just thinking about the act. They're not thinking about, my God, what's a vagina? And so I'm sure we'll talk about proper and anatomical names as well at some point, but also that sex isn't just for making babies. And that actually some babies aren't made through sex. My babies weren't. My babies were made through IVF. So we have other conversations in my house as well. And we have lots of books about IVF. And so my daughter grew up knowing that she was made in the clinic, but not how, quote unquote, normal people make babies. So nowadays, there's, there's a whole spectrum of how babies are made. You know, so many amazing assisted reproductive techniques that are available to us. But it's so important to talk about sex also in the context of pleasure. And this brings us back to self-pleasure. Because if we can help our children to, to realize that self-pleasure is acceptable, then they will know what those feelings are. And then they will know how to negotiate receiving pleasure from others and then they will know when they don't want it and that's something which all makes us you know just gives me goosebumps thinking about when my children won't want it and that's you know one of the biggest jobs I feel I have is to be able to empower my children to be able to say no to something Mm. and that begins with you know we bought a book the other day called please don't touch my hair Um, and that's that's the beginning of that conversation so trying to say, well, yes, babies are made this way, but we also do it because it feels nice. Yeah. And it's so hard to say that, mm. but it's so important because mm. we're the ones that are feeling that, you know, sweaty anxiety. They will, you know, go back to building Lego. 
It is. It is amazing. (laughs) I remember so well being with my children and actually my nephew and niece. And we were uh, were in a restaurant up in the mountains in Austria. And my my brother-in-law brought out this little survival kit. And in there was, you know, a piece of string and some matches. And there was a condom. I was Mm. like, oh, what do you need that for? And he goes, it's actually the perfect thing for collecting water. Because it's really small and it's watertight. And I remember my son, who was probably about seven at the time, went, oh, is that what a condom is for? Collecting water. And I remember looking over at my sister and we both just were like, we can't just say yes. Yes. <laughs> and so we said, actually, no, condom is... And I, I told them what it was for. Mm. Obviously, in language, in a way that was Age appropriate. appropriate. But I mean, I said, you know, you know how... When, I talked yes. to them all about sex at that, yes. that stage. I said, you know, sometimes people don't want to have babies. You yeah. A bit like a sock. Yes. You, know, you, pre- you prevent... It's like a gate that stops the sperm going in. Yes. And they were like, okay. And then the next question was can we have chips with our meal? Yes. Like, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like everyone sat there in stunned silence thinking, yes. oh my God, this is the biggest watershed moment. Yes. They were like, okay, in the same way that I told them how to use nail clippers to yes. cut your toenails. You exactly. know, it was very straightforward. Yes. And it, it because we didn't sit down and go, right, I need to talk to you about contraception. And, and I remember then... Someone, I was talking to another friend and she said, oh, you know, the problem is, is that you're so honest with your children. They're just going to go around and tell all their friends about it in the playground. And I said, I really don't think that's going to be the case Mm. because I'm so honest with them. Mm. Like, it's not a big deal. Mm. They'd much rather play tag. They're not going to be like, oh my God, I just found out what a condom was. because It's not taboo for them. Yeah, and it wasn't presented in that sort of sensationalist way. And I also felt that when someone does, you know, inevitably in the playground, people will be like, condom sex whatever you know my children will be like yeah I know what a condom is like what's the big deal yeah which I think will make them the coolest kids in the playground absolutely rather than the one that's like did you know there's this thing called a condom yeah and you know suddenly it it feels like they just be a bit more mature so I I feel that by having that honest conversation with Mm. them I've kind of empowered them to be definitely resilient and yeah and also banking on those you know we call them teachable moments you know, what's this? What's this condom? And and those are moments that, you know, as a mother and as a sex educator, I really look forward to those. And sometimes they happen in the most inconvenient places and situations. And and this brings me back to parents and carers who are not prepared to answer the question because um, they might not feel confident enough to. And so there's always the opportunity to say, this is a really good question. We'll come back to this. I'm going to find a way of answering this question for you, but we can't talk about this now. And I think there's so much value in saying that, in saying that, but also that you don't have the answer. That's quite empowering for them to see that also you're not this perfect human that that has the answer to everything, but must, must, must get back to them. There are so many resources now to help parents have these conversations and that basically do the work for us. I mean, in the early years, and I'm talking, you know, my daughter's eight, but we still read them. There's a wealth of books on how babies are made, but also sex for pleasure, the different ways of making babies, and just simple anatomy, and talking about, you know, this is your arm, this is your leg, this is your vulva, this is your penis, and just trying to use those words and say them as often as possible. Because why should we be scared of saying the word vagina? And yet mm. it's so rarely used in yeah. everyday narrative. Yeah, well, apparently only 1% of us say vulva, which is the word anatomically that we should be saying is vulva, but we've been saying vagina for years. And, the, you know, there's a vagina museum, but it actually should really be called a vulva museum. 
And and yeah, apparently only 1% of us say vulva. And I think it's just, yeah, it's just years and years of stigma that have just created this very hard shell that means that we can't call a spade a spade. And, and what do you think? I mean, there are plenty of people that, you know, find that don't use the word vulva, but they also don't Which use the vagina. Which is fine also. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, with my eldest, we didn't call it vulva or vagina. We had another name. And then I, I came to that later when I started realising that actually there's an opportunity here to really normalise language. And it is absolutely fine to have all those code names, provided they also know the proper name. And there's, there's several reasons for that. One is obviously to normalise as much as possible conversation, but for them also to feel a sense of ownership of this is my vulva, these are my inner lips, these are my outer lips, this is my penis, these are my testicles, and to be really you know specific about parts of their anatomy, and especially for girls who can't see you know, what it looks like. And so I do often encourage parents who have children who are exploring, who have girls who are exploring their genitals, to take a mirror and to, to show their girls what it looks like because they're discovering with their hands because they're curious. So, you know, feed into that curiosity and squat over a little mirror and just show them and explain to them that we have three holes and they have different functions. And again, these are facts. You know, it's not, this isn't anything that we're debating on. You know, urethra is for passing urine. Your vagina is for, is for passing blood later on when you'll hit puberty. You know, it's another conversation we need to prepare them for. And your anus is for passing waste. So these are all, you know, they're functional parts of our body that serve a really clear purpose. Um, Do you not think that by giving it a code name, though, you're sort of somehow insinuating that vulva or vagina are dirty words? Definitely. So if you can do both, if you can do one, then it would ideally be vulva or vagina. But if you're going to do both, then just make sure that they, you have your code name, but you also have your proper name. For safeguarding reasons, sorry, that's my last reason, is if they're in a context where you're not there and they have some discomfort in that area, that they can go to a trusted adult at school or somewhere and say, well, do you know what, my, my vulva's really itchy or, you know, my testicles sore. And they can be really specific about that. And then you're also doing that in the context of privacy. And that takes us back to a safeguarding issue. Yeah, I, I would hope that in generations, we wouldn't have any more code names. And I feel like we are getting there. We definitely are getting there. But it's, yeah, it's, it's you know, we don't call breast breast. We have a hundred names for breasts as well. It's, it's really interesting to think about why all this started in the first place but I think we definitely are progressing there mm. yeah it's, it's I mean some some of these names are just they're almost like really sexual yeah in a way which then sort of feel I find that the sort of fact-based like you were talking about mm. just gives you so much it makes that conversation so much easier mm. whereas if you're calling them like your sexy bits it's sort of a it's really fake yes and b I just feel a bit uncomfortable about four-year-old talking about sexy bits when actually this is a chance to say... Yeah, sexy is bits is a bit, distur- <laughs> is a bit disturbing. The one that gets me is front bottom. Yes. <laughs> I, find, I find that one difficult. But I think it's just because we have done what our parents have done. And then we realise, well, I didn't really like that name, so I'll find another name. And so we'll hear what our friends say or, you know, what we've read online. And so we do that. But I think that there is so much more of a movement now to try and, and normalise and use proper anatomical names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyone that does use code names, 
you know, just slowly bring in and there's an opportunity, you can go to the toilet four or five times a day at least, an opportunity to say, you know, well, wipe your vulva this way. And when you're in the bath, well, wash your vulva, wash your anus, you know, did you know that this was called this? And again, use the books because the books are, are really fantastic. So... Do you think that it's easy? It's better to have this conversation one-on-one or is it sometimes easier to have it in... No, I'm not talking in a group, but say you've got three children mm. that are all sort of around the same age and can, you know, same, you know, area of understanding. Is it is it better to have it one-on-one or is it better to have it in a group? If you feel able to have it in a group, then you, you're sending quite a strong message that you talk about these things openly in your household. I think there's... There's age-appropriate conversations. If you're getting into, you know, if I was answering the condom question or the sex question, then actually I probably would do it in front of my four and my two-year-old because it would probably fly over my two-year-old's head. She wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. But I'm trying to think with my own children, there there generally isn't anything that I say to my eight-year-old in in secret. So from from a very personal point of view, for me, it's it's about having those conversations as openly as you can. And we have them also with, with you know, friends who come around as well. I mean, in my office, I have a wealth of different resources, including things like crochet vulvas and a whole box of, you know, model contraception kits and things like that. And I have had to, on a few occasions, say to parents of children who come play with us, you know, they have been playing in my office today. And so they have seen the crochet vulvas. Imagine the child went and go, we played with mother's vulva. Yeah. (laughs) What? What? Yeah. So, so there, I do feel quite strongly that they are, you know, conversations that we have in our household. Yes, you can play with this in our household. My daughter knows what they are. I don't hide anything from her. And you know, anyone who comes into our household and sees those things, you know, I don't want them to leave feeling alarmed. Obviously, that's not the idea. The idea is to just show them what it is in a very normal way. And most of the time, like you say, they don't bat an eyelid. They just want, you know, to go back to their Lego. But I always tell whoever's collecting them. And if it's not the parent, then I will always let them know, just to let you know, (laughs) we've been playing with crochet vulvas today. (laughs) (laughs) And do you that I mean you've obviously got daughters Mm. but if you had a son would Mm. it be easier for the father of the child to talk to them or do you do you think that kind of the same sex should talk about it or should it come from both parents ideally it's equal yeah because you're sending a strong message about genders being able to talk about pretty much anything but I always say if 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 the topic of conversation is hugely triggering for you then try and pass the buck to the other one who feels more comfortable with it so most people will say you know when I teach parents and I'll ask them you know what was your sex education like I think very rarely one person will say amazing most of the time it's virtually non-existent they if they had some form of sex ed at home with their parents there was always one parent that they tended to go to more than the other And sometimes that's not necessarily to do with them having all the answers. It's just that they were more approachable. So in our household, you know, I think my husband would would sort of steer it more my way. (laughs) But having said that, there's nothing he won't talk about either. So in an ideal world, it would come from from both parents equally. And I think that as you as your journey of 
as a parent evolves, you become, it, it, the conversations that you think are going to be impossible to have become a little bit easier than you anticipate. I remember so well, my husband got a tattoo when I was pregnant with um, Ludo, I think, uh, in the, literally on the floor of a pub, like totally inappropriate. And I was like, right, for that, you're going to have to do the sex talk with our children <laughs> and actually uh, having been quite squeamish about it I'm on you know totally different mm. party because mm. I've educated myself in mm. that but also because I realized that having difficult conversations with your children really just brings you a bit closer it I think they feel really proud that you entrust them you know to have this difficult conversations and I've actually got friends who say oh you're so good at that sex talk and actually yeah. my children always come home sort of armed with stuff that I wish they'd known yeah. and I think in a weird way my children feel quite proud that they've got the parent that they can kind of ask all the parents they can ask anything yes to absolutely and I think this goes back to if they're not getting the answers from us they will seek them elsewhere you know I had I have had and have a very close relationship with my mother and she was always the person that all my friends would would steer to as well and she she would always have an open house for us all because she thought well at least I know where you are at least you're not you know hanging out on street corners and that kind of thing so that was always a really strong message from her and I think yeah coming back to what you're saying there's we, we, we want to sort of redirect to someone else but actually when we put ourselves in that zone with our children we work through the discomfort together. And I always say, you know, name that and say, yeah, this, this is a tricky conversation for mummy or, you know, mummy never had this conversation with granny and, and show them that you feel a little bit, you know, st- perhaps stressed by that as well, but work through that together. And again, use the tools, use the books. You know, I, I will share some resources. There are now many fantastic YouTube videos that you can watch with your children about other parents talking to their children about sex. And then you can be the person that's sort of saying, well, what did you think about that? And as I said, it's not about necessarily about saying what the right answer is, but about getting them to think critically, you know, giving them the facts, but then adding the layers of, well, think critically about, you know, well, what would, what would you have liked or what would you have done and how would you have reacted to that? so that they can be, as you say, this sort of source of knowledge amongst their friends as well for for them to be able to share the information. Because they will at some point realise that they've been really lucky to have this open conversation at home because maybe not all their friends will. And and I'm hoping that gratitude will be shown at some point. I say, well, thanks for that, (laughs) Mum. So... I mean, obviously, there's this sort of stage where you're talking about this Mm. and you kind of, as a parent, you think, brilliant, I control this situation. Mm. You know, I am in charge of naming these parts. I'm Mm. in charge of kind of forming her opinion. But obviously, our children grow up and then they become teenagers and then they do start experimenting Mm -hmm. and being curious and sharing that experience with other Mm -hmm. people, which I think is, you know, there's one thing getting around sort of talking about sex with your your little child. There is a different thing getting used to the idea that your child is kissing someone and maybe feeling someone and maybe even having sex with someone, which I think is quite hard as a a parent. I mean, I I feel I'm dreading that. I'm going to be totally honest. Yeah. Why do we feel so squeamish about our children becoming sexually active? I mean, I've spoken to, I spoke to a father the other day. He was like, I literally feel like I want to lynch the guy yeah. that kisses my daughter. Yes. And obviously that's not a good feeling to have. And, yeah. you know, he'd be the first person to admit that. But yeah. yet we have these feelings. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so difficult because, you know, we've, 
we've cared for these children since day one and we have to at some point let them we know we have to at some point let them go and we yeah we dread the situation but I think ultimately it comes down to just wanting to protect them and I think this is where a lot of parents get a bit confused perhaps when they think that protecting means not informing them honestly about what life is really like later on and I think protecting them is equipping them with the tools to be able to manage all those situations and so yeah we absolutely cringe at the thought of it because it's our children allowing someone to be physically close to them and we're the ones that have been so physically close to them for years it's and a basically then, being dumped yeah for <laughs> someone else I mean I get very few hugs from my eight-year-old now I have to bribe her um but when I do I I, I really hold her tight because I know that you know she she now has the right to say no to me well they all have the right to say no but I have to really listen to her she's she's um yeah she she's very she we've had the consent conversation since very young so she said no I've asked you to stop I don't like kisses and I've said no so you must listen to me so we have all those conversations but yeah I think it's 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 just such a natural natural reaction for parents to to feel that anxiety and it, it does come back to the fact that we know the potential for you know, physical touch going wrong. And so we want to protect our children from any risk involved and we want to be guarding them safely as possible. But preparing them without scaring them is educating them the best we can on what is safe touch. And and being a real bitch to their boyfriends is not going to help matters at all. I mean, no. I, I kind of feel like I'm going to have to get my feelings sorted out because I don't want suddenly my daughter or my son to feel unwelcome yeah. at my house with their partner. Yeah. I also, you know, there's a, it's interesting, I, I spent a bit of time in Spain when I was in my tw- early 20s and, you know, my parents were pretty, quite liberal and thought, well, we'd rather whatever's happening is under our roof. And in Spain, you know, the, the, the parents were all in denial about what their children were getting up to. Mm. And as a result, it was happening in a really seedy way in the back yeah. of cars and in their father's offices. Yes. And I just remember thinking, I'm so grateful that I had that sort of acceptance. I yes. think that is really important, even yes. if it is something as a parent, you feel uncomfortable about the idea yes. of your child having sex in Absolutely, your house. absolutely. And I think that, you know, the foundations of helping our children with romantic relationships begins much earlier. It begins when they're navigating friendships. And so when our children come to us with what we think might be something really trivial, like he wouldn't sit next to me at lunch or, you know, Juliet wouldn't play with me in the playground or something like that, we often think, oh, well, you know, come on, be resilient, be strong. And we think, don't don't give it too much attention. But actually, those are really good opportunities to help children understand, well, how friendship works. You know, that friendship is built on values, it's built on respect, on love, on kindness, on all these really important points that are ultimately the foundation of a romantic relationship and then a sexual relationship. Because that's what we all really want, is that for our children who are going to be sexual, to have healthy sexual relationships. And the best chance of them achieving those is by understanding what those relationships are built on. And we really want that to be friendship. You know, we spend, we spend so much of our lives building towards, you know, the aspiration is that we need to meet this one person, you know, and, and no matter how much we like to try and challenge that stereotype, it is 
inevitably around us, this aspiration of two people meeting and spending their life together. And, you know, it's interesting, the curriculum now, it talks about marriage, but it talks about all different kinds of family structures. And so, you know, there are a lot of single parent families, there are a lot of same sex families, and that is represented in the curriculum now and also in books around us as well, so that we can begin to show children that there are many different structures to what relationships are. But we are also saying that happiness is meeting someone else. And so I think when we say be kind to others, I always try and say, well, be kind to yourself first. And, you know, you will attract happy things if you're happy yourself. And so always trying to, you know, start from within. I know that sounds cheesy, but trying to to really to get parents to understand that, you know, the the values that that we want to sort of you know, seek out in a partner are the values that we hold dearly towards ourselves and towards our siblings. And all those values, you know, studies have shown that, you know, no matter what happens at school or no matter what happens in our society or communities, it's really the values in the home that bear the most impact on a child forming an identity. Um, I've digressed massively here, sorry. <laughs> Have you ever encountered a parent who said, like, I need some therapy because I really cannot abide the idea of my child being sexually active? I mean, I would never say to a parent, you know, you don't need therapy. I think everyone needs therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you're happy or not, I think therapy's is a fantastic tool if you can do it. But I do see that parents are, you know, I've had... I had a mum over lockdown saying, you know, I think my son's a pervert and he was four. And I just, I just, I felt so much, you know, compassion. And I felt so upset for her that she felt that because what her son was doing was basically fondling him, fondling himself, was discovering himself, um, was completely natural thing. But she came from a very religious background where you just didn't talk about sex in her household. And so, she almost needed, you know, she, yes, she would have benefited from some kind of conversation to acknowledge, you know, why she had that, that, why she'd stigmatized that. And, you know, the, the, when we, when we demonize that, we, you know, we really need to, 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 I think, search deeper about why we, we hold those feelings towards, you know, our children becoming sexual beings. But to answer your question, Everyone needs therapy, in my view. <laughs> because I don't know if you've... I think you probably have watched it, is Sex Education. Yeah, it's brilliant. And yeah. it's a fantastically yeah. written... But, but part of me just, like, fills me with fear because these children are, like, 15, 16, yeah. and they're all yes. so yes. involved sexually with each yes. other, with everything at such a young age. Is that reflective of what life really is like, or is this just, you know, fiction? I mean, yeah, I think it reflects life, if I'm honest. When I think back to, you know, what I was doing, I'll happily share when I was 15 or 16 if if my children are doing that. Shock horror. But no, we, you know, I had boyfriends when I was 16, 17. And, you know, I had a few relationships before I I met my husband. And so, um, and I now see the value in those relationships and they have made me who I am today. And... You know, my, my father, who's a very open, uh, realistic man, who's very laid back in his attitudes, he was like, the worst thing you can do is, is marry the first person you meet. You want experience and you want to learn from past relationships. But there's a fantastic scene in Sex Education where Jean Milburn, who's played by Gillian Anderson, 
finds the sheets under her son's bed with the sperm on them and her shock horror. And this is a woman whose house is filled with all sorts of phallic symbols and who speaks about clitorises and penises all day. Because it's her job. And because it's her job, yeah. And she 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 finds these these sheets under the bed and she she obviously you know that just to give a bit of background on the on the on the um, the series her son has been having trouble he's been masturbating but not being able to ejaculate and so she's finally realized and she has the evidence that he's ejaculated and she knows she should be pleased but she's actually you know shock horror strikes her face and that's a really interesting conversation that i've had with parents about i've seen this what do i do and it really depends if Ideally, parents will have had a conversation already about puberty by then. And, you know, when, when we talk in relationship sex education context, we talk about preparing before the events happen. So you, you prepare your children for puberty before puberty starts. You know, so many hormonal changes that are going to happen that are going to make it difficult anyway. But if they're unprepared, then we're, we're, looking, <laughs> we're looking at children who are going to be you know, wondering what on earth is happening to their poor bodies. So again, we're trying to normalize that. But but I expect that, you know, Jean Milvin in sex education will have already spoken to her son Otis about, and she would have used the words penis, she would have used the word erection, she would have used the word sperm, she would have probably used the term morning glory or something like that. So that Yes, it's, it feels not taboo to him, but it feels a little bit naughty to him, but that he knows deep down that it's okay to be doing this. And I think, I think that's the balance that's really tricky to achieve is it's, it's that, yes, it's okay to talk about this, but it's still private. And I think that's, I don't have all the answers there. And I'm still working respect, them out. You know, that, you know, how you might have one child that's quite keen to divulge and to share. And then you mm. might have one child who's signaling to you, I do not want to have this conversation. Obviously, it's really important to have a form of conversation, but mm. presumably also have to, you know, look at the signs. And if yeah. you've got a really shy child who just isn't, just finds it excruciating, mm. you're not going to probe and probe and probe. You're no. going to give them the facts. Yes. You're going to make sure that they know that they can ask you about anything, but you're not going to torture them with sort no. of, you know, wanting to talk about vulvas every breakfast. Yeah. And I think, again, there's, you know, so much to be said for books for children who don't want to talk about it. And they are storybooks. They're not nonfiction. And, uh, and I think there's so much value in them just listening to something and looking at something without feeling like they're being told something. I'm saying that in a really simple way, but it, essentially it's about just taking the information in as a witness and, and not being instructed, you know, how, how things work, but just to observe. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, I've been teaching for many years and there are, I don't like to put children in boxes, but there are really two categories when we come to learn and it's those that throw themselves in at the deep end and those that sit back and observe. And sometimes it takes those children a little bit longer to put their feet in the water, but eventually with the right support, they do. And that's really us as parents who are the ones that know our children really the best is to know how much they can cope with. And, and this, you know, the, the conversation around relationship and sex education is, there's a bit of a misconception around, I think you've mentioned it before about it being one big kitchen table talk. And actually, it's, it's layers of really appropriate information that's drip-fed 
you know, for, for years and years. Mm. And finding the, uh, the, the, the clues in, in the right context around us and using those as conversation starters so that we're not just dumping this information out of the blue, which is nothing worse. And we're, we're surrounded by it, you know, Pre- a pregnant neighbour. You know, well, how do you think Maria got pregnant? You know, what do we need to make babies? And ask them the questions mm-hmm. that you want mm-hmm. them to ask you. Leaving tampons around the house or, you know, if and when you shave your legs, well, why is that? And do we need to? And all those conversations that we need to, to try and teach our children to, you know, this is yes how people have behaved for generations, but to get them to think critically about whether that's right for them and what message we're trying to give. I think, you know, when we talk about older children, they then become so exposed to different images around them. I think, you know, children who have devices see about 5,000 different images a week. And it was really interesting, actually. I taught a class a month ago on body image, and we were talking about the different types of images that we see and about photoshopping and manufacturing doctoring images and what the purpose of those images are for, you know, what advertising is, you know, why it's marketed this way, who's the target market, and really getting deeply into what the purpose is of all these images and, you know, why are we always seeing the same things? And I think that's the beginning of thinking critically. And then when children come to see explicit images you know, in pornography, you know, parents have often come to me once their child has seen an explicit image, whether it's on their own device because they haven't put filters on or whether they've gone to a friend's house for a play date and there's an older sibling and also no parental controls. And that's also an opportunity to get your children to think critically about what they're seeing so that they don't see that as reality, but that they see it as something that is very much set up and that is trying to access a specific target market and the inappropriateness of it without trying to demonize it, which is obviously a very difficult thing to do. But yeah, it's a really interesting conversation when we come to to think about images and what we see. And so if you can start having that conversation early with them about well, it's interesting, we keep seeing Coca-Cola everywhere or, you know, why do we always see this Heinz? Why is Heinz everywhere? You know, we think of tomato soup, we think Heinz. And just on a very basic level, and then we can begin to add the layers of that in a sexual context. Mm-hmm. I've digressed again. Oh, well, Saskia, I <laughs> so enjoyed talking to you. And I'm so Thank proud you. that we're having this conversation because I don't think my parents generation did necessarily Mm. have this as honestly and I think that there will be people listening who will find this conversation harder to have and Mm. might even be shocked at some of the things that we've talked about Mm. but I think even just you know wanting to be a part of this conversation and beginning to understand how what an important conversation it is I think is is a crucial thing and, and hopefully we're becoming better communicators as parents and that's only going to empower and safeguard our children to a greater extent yes absolutely and I think for you know for any parent who's struggling with the conversation my advice is just find some support and whether that's talking to someone you know your partner talking to friends or uh, finding some resources because you know the, the not talking to our children about this is also saying something. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah and so where would you find resources you what would you search in YouTube? I can always put notes kind of in the, yes. in the podcast episodes. So yeah. We can go so what that. I, I, on my Instagram account, I have, I've created little stories where I've basically taken lots of pictures of different books. But just to throw a few out there for the early years, anyone sort of eight and under, and we're looking at fiction, there's a fantastic author called Babette Cole, who um, does a lot on nudity, body hair, how to make babies, the beginning of consent. She's a fantastic author. So you can look up anything by Babette Cole. And she also addresses the sort of stereotypes as well. She's done Princess Smarty Pants, which is good fun. Mummy Laid an Egg is her other good one. And What Mummy Never Told Me. Those are all fantastic books. And then you've obviously got all the nonfiction for the slightly older age group, which is, you know, why talk, where do babies come from, things like that. So, so it's always worth having a look at just what you know what the amazon says under sex ed for children there's a they have a big section there for children so do that there's also a fantastic website called scarletine which is for slightly older children i'd say from eight plus and then there's also um i mentioned some videos there's an organization called amaze.org and they have videos on safe touch consent puberty so you can actually sit down and watch the video with your child and then you discuss it for parents there's a fantastic organization called sex positive families and she has a podcast she runs webinars and she has lots of free resources on her website and she's my go-to sex positive families and for short drives to school six minutes sex ed is another podcast that's great um where she goes into different topics as well so but if you go into your podcast section you can type in sex ed you know generally we all are singing from the same hymn song sheet hymn sheet these days so so i think you, you can't go wrong by trying to find good resources perfect well i've yeah. actually loved your your instagram which is factsoflife.ed just lots of different sort of pause for thought and different mm. ways of interpreting you know challenges you face as, yeah. as parents so thanks for that thank you saskia it's been a real pleasure having you on thank you thank for you for having me such a great communicator around this topic <laughs> and thank you all for downloading another episode of the parenthood you can follow saskia as i talked about on factsoflife.ed on instagram i'm also a marina.fogel if you have any questions i'll put i'll put show notes in the bottom of this this podcast but in the meantime from saskia and me thanks for listening and goodbye even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.